All right, well, we, I think, all know that family meals are important for the cohesive development of a family. And that's true for families as they sit around a dinner table together, hopefully multiple times a week. That gets harder as kids get older, I, I understand. But that is an important developing piece in a family's life. But beyond that one, you know, nightly meal together, there's something really interesting about the way that families for generations are connected through shared family recipes. So you, you might think of, you know, when your mom would pull out grandma's recipe on this thing or that thing, and it connected you in a unique way to people who you probably didn't know very well because grandma's recipe was probably her grandma's recipe and all the way back in the way that meals work to shape community in the moment, but then also across space and time is something that's hard to understand. Um, it's hard to articulate why that is, but we, we get it, we understand it. And I think this is true also of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a ritualized edition of a meal that connects us to each other as a church, but then also to Christians throughout space and time. So we sing of this in one popular hymn called The Church's One Foundation. I'm going to read verse 2 and a per- portion of verse 4 for you that illustrates this. The church in every nation is one through all the earth, our charter of salvation, one God, one faith, one birth, one name together blessing, one holy food we share, to one hope ever pressing at one in work and prayer. Yet we on earth have union with God the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. That is, those Christians who are in heaven, who are separated from us. And this, this song that we sing, perhaps sometimes thoughtlessly, I think points out this mystery of meals that connects us across space and time to one another, and particularly the meal of the Lord's Supper. So in it, we have this universal mystic sweet communion. And for that reason alone, the Lord's Supper is important, but the importance of the Lord's Supper goes beyond just that community-forming aspect, as we'll come to see. But we need to begin by talking about some terminology. And for those of you who have notes, if you don't have notes, Dave can get them to you. Um, It may or may not be helpful to follow along all the way. These notes are primarily a resource for when you go home to be able to review and think about these things. Um, And I'll, I'll probably skip around a bit because there's much to cover. But as we look at terminology, there are a bunch of terms for the Lord's Supper that we use. And some of them are or include the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, communion, the table, the Lord's table, all of these things. Sometimes we refer to it as a meal. And I don't think that there's a virtue in using one term exclusively, nor is there a virtue in using every term every time we talk about the Lord's Supper. These different terms have different ideas connected to them. I want to point out three. The first is the Lord's Supper, and this is perhaps the term we use most commonly. And that's just a term that's used by Paul in 1 Corinthians when he says, this is not the Lord's Supper that you eat to these individuals who are not really eating the Lord's Supper. So that's where we get that term. And in, in this term um, is just a general one that I think we can use anytime, all the time when we're referencing the, the Lord's Supper. Uh, but then also Eucharist is another term that's used. This is derived from the verb um, Eucharisteo, which means I give thanks. This is the word that Jesus spoke as he prayed before instituting the Lord's Supper for the first time, where 
he says, I give thanks to, to the Father for this. And so this, this term, I think, is used almost exclusively in some denominational groups. And for that reason, some Baptists sort of have an allergy to calling the Lord's Supper the Eucharist. But the, this term is important and needed because it reminds us to give thanks to God for this meal. And it's, it's the language that Jesus used. So we use this at times, particularly when we want to em- emphasize our gratitude and thanksgiving for the Lord as we approach the table. But then another kind of generic term that is used is communion. And this is derived from the language Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, when he talks about the way that we have communion with God in one another as we partake of the table, and where when you knowingly eat food sacrificed to idols, perhaps in a temple, you have communion with, with the demonic powers behind those idols. So this language of communion emphasizes the unifying and relationship-forming aspects of the Lord's Supper. So when we want to emph- emphasize that as we, as we participate in the Lord's Supper, we'll call it communion. And we probably don't um, think as you know carefully or intentionally about the term we use every time we do it. So I guess you could track the way that we refer to the Lord's Supper and then tell us if we're using these terms inappropriately or inconsistently, but we think that all of these terms are helpful and they communicate something meaningful about the Lord's Supper. Okay, any comments or questions up to this point? Okay, the meaning of the Lord's Supper. I want to just give you three categories of meaning that's debated and that has been debated throughout church history relating to the Lord's Supper, and um, we're not going to talk about any of them really today. Uh, this, this is needed in a larger Bible class, but it would take us all day just to talk about one, one view here. But there are three categories. Jesus' presence, the prophet or the benefit, and then the presidency, that is, who, who officiates the Lord's table. And these things have been debated ad nauseum for thousand, well, 2,000 years, essentially. Relating to the presence, there are debates about whether or not Jesus is present in the Lord's Supper, and if so, how he is present in the Lord's Supper. Um, regarding the prophet, there's debate about whether or not the Lord's Supper is profitable beyond a memorial or not. You know, is, is there some benefit that's received by partaking of the Lord's table? And then presidency, you know, who, who officiates the table? Can only a priest officiate the Lord's table or can anybody? What, what does that mean and what does that look like? These are all debates that, that go on. And um, generally, when Baptists talk about their beliefs on this, I think we fall into that bad trap of just talking about what we believe is not true instead of what, affirming what we believe is true about these things. And then often we can take cheap shots at, at Roman Catholics for their beliefs. And so uh, though we can't in this class get into these things, I want to encourage you, if you start talking to your Roman Catholic neighbors, there's the Roman Catholic Catechism that's free to read online, and you should read the 10 pages or so on the Lord's Supper, and you'll identify some things that we do believe and affirm and some things that we don't, and be careful when you're talking to your Catholic friends and neighbors not to criticize them incorrectly. Read, read the official documents of the Catholic Church. And I think the same is true for any other denomination where you have friends or relatives or neighbors actually try to understand what they're saying instead of just assuming it. And then as those 
individuals, if, if they're genuine Christians, but outside of your denomination, you can rejoice in the shared beliefs in the Lord's Supper, even where you might spot differences as well. I want to move on, though, to the practice of the Lord's Supper. And this is, this is where we're going to spend all of our time this morning. And I'm going to reference a lot of Baptist history because we're a Baptist church. And I want to show you a little bit where we are doing the same thing that Baptists have done from the beginning. And then also a little bit of where that falls into the larger church tradition. So let's start by talking about the bread. Okay, I think if you grew up like I did, primarily when you had the Lord's Supper, you were crunching on oyster crackers. And um, that's not bad, but that's not what Baptists have done for their whole history. In fact, from the very beginning, Baptists used leavened bread. And that was common in virtually every Baptist church from, from the very beginning of the Baptist denomination. Until um, about the 1900s, the Baptist and the larger church movement moved away from leavened bread to unleavened bread. And it's hard to explain why that happened. Um, one of the reasons that happened in the Baptist world is that paedo-baptists, that's people who baptize babies, were looking at Baptists and saying, you guys are majorly inconsistent because you're insisting on baptism by immersion, so doing exactly what Jesus did, but now you're using leavened bread when Jesus used unleavened bread, you know, therefore you're really inconsistent. And so Baptists had this motivation to use unleavened bread. Now, we'll get into this at a mom in a moment, but at that time, when they were using leavened bread, they were all using alcoholic wine as well. So there were um, disparate you know, changes, one to be more like Jesus, perhaps, and one to be less like Jesus in response to the, these claims of inconsistency leveraged against Baptists. Now, at Resurrection Church here, we use unleavened bread, um, though we need to note that there's a difference between leavened, leaven and yeast. You know, yeast is a rising agent. Leavening is something a little bit different. Uh, but the fact that we use unleavened bread doesn't mean that you need to use oyster crackers or eat something that crunches. So sometimes we get the idea that unleavened bread is crunchy. Well, the, the bread that we use, my wife made it this morning, and there's no uh, rising agent in it that I'm aware of. It's like, uh, can you shout out the ingredients of this thing? Flour, sugar, eggs, and oil. Okay, so, so it's uh, not leavened. There's no yeast in there. Um, but the, uh, well, yeah, we need to make a distinction between leaven and yeast. So sometimes we'll talk to people and like, well, it's not crunchy, so why are we, why are we eating it? Well, well, it's really good to, to have bread um, that's not a cracker. Um, but I think that when we're looking at this and we're looking at the kind of bread we're using, we need to remember that Jesus in the Lord's Supper ritualized a ritual. Okay, so the Passover was a ritual already, and now it's compacted even more. But it's, while it maintains some, some of the same symbolism of the Passover, it's now reflecting a different kind of Passover, and therefore the elements reflect different meanings. So the reason for unleavened bread in the Old Testament in the Passover was to symbolize the haste in which the Israelites packed up their things and left Egypt. They didn't have time for the bread to rise, so they, they grabbed their stuff and got out of there. Well, that, that was an important part of the Passover, and that's why unleavened bread was really important. Well, in the Lord's Supper, there's not that same um, you know, idea in the bread. 
necessarily. Now, as we connect it to the Passover, there's some there, but it wouldn't be wrong for a church to use unleavened or to use leavened bread or bread with yeast in it because we're having a different meal than the Passover. Um, and in this new meal, in this Lord's Supper, the bread symbolizes something different. Okay, so in 1 Corinthians um, 5, and in 1 Corinthians 10, in particular, 10:17, Paul says that because there is one bread, we are one body. So whereas before the unleavened bread indicated the haste in which Israel left Egypt, now this loaf of bread indicates the unity of the church. So I think for that reason, we don't want to use oyster crackers that come out in little bits and pieces as a disparate, you know, collection of things. We want to have one loaf that we separate out and that demonstrates both the breaking of Christ's body in his flesh and in the unity of Christ's body, the church. Now, beyond this, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about leaven. And when he talks about leaven there, he doesn't care about bread at all. He talks about leaven, which is sin in the church. And there he's saying, when you need to exercise church discipline, particularly when you come to the table, because a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. Church, you're the loaf. Leaven is sin in, in unrepentant individuals. And so therefore, you need to come to the Lord's table in a worthy manner, which is through the exercise of excision of sin, both of unrepentant members and sin in your own life. So as we look at bread, I think it, I would prefer in my ideal world, and, and this is where church isn't my ideal world always and never will be. In my ideal world, we would have loaves of homemade bread with no pre-slicing and any of that, and we, it would be torn apart as we hand it out and as individuals come to the front and receive it. And, and that's what happened in early Baptist life. And uh, they also used the common cup in early Baptist life, which I'm, I will talk about in a moment. But in the ideal world, we would visualize it, this breaking of the body and coming from lo one loaf where Christ's physical body was divided in a sense so that his church can be united as one body. Any questions about the bread? Okay, let's then talk about the cup, beginning with alcoholic versus non-alcoholic um, wine or juice. And I'll just uh, pause and say, hear me out all the way through, because I know there are some in our assembly who uh, would never be in favor of alcohol in any place, anywhere. And there are others who would believe we must have alcohol in, in the communion cup for it to be what Jesus did. Well, hear me out, because I'm going to talk about both sides and hopefully explain why we do what we do. But Baptists and all Christians originally used fermented or alcoholic wine for communion. There was no question about that. This is just what happened. And Baptists used the common cup. Larger congregations would use multiple common cups or there'd be multiple individuals at the front. You'd come up. The pastors or deacons most likely in the Baptist tradition would, would sort of give you a, a sip of this alcoholic wine. But there was a movement from alcoholic wine to non-alcoholic wine that was especially connected to the prohibition movement in America. 
So when I'm talking about this movement to non-alcoholic wine, that's virtually within the, the United States. That is not true worldwide, except for where missionaries from the United States have set up practices of non-alcoholic communion. But in, in the vein of prohibition, nearly all Baptist churches moved to Welch's grape juice, which was invented during this time, you know, sort of pasteurizing this, and as many church historians complain, killing the living blood of Christ, as you'll read in various uh, theological reflections during the time and other denominations. Um, but um, this, this is what happened. Baptist churches adopted Welch's grape juice, now, and, and that's what we use at Resurrection Church currently. I think it would be helpful to identify a different brand of grape juice that doesn't taste like the thing you send your kindergartner with to school. Um, and, and I'll talk about that more as we go. I think something that would better complement the taste of the bread and that would signify the paradoxical sweetness and bitterness of the cup of wrath, of God's wrath that Jesus drank on our behalf. There's this guy, George Herbert, who captures that really well in a poem. It says this, who knows not love, like him assay or like him test or taste that juice, which on the cross the pike did set again broach. Like him say, if ever he did taste the like. Love is that liquor sweet and most divine, which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. And, and that's what the, the wine of communion was intended to communicate, this uh, both sweet and bitter cup of God's wrath. So um, the use of alcoholic wine, I, based on Christian tradition, I'm going to suggest is preferred um, because prior to 1900, that's what Christians did for, for 1900 years or 1850 years, however you want to parse that out. Um, and I, so second, though, it's preferred because worldwide Christianity still maintains the use of alcoholic wine. And um, where, there, th where it, we look at the larger church, where we make distinctions in diet, there's distinction in fellowship. Think of the Jewish food laws, where if you weren't permitted to eat something, it naturally kept the Jews and Gentiles from dining together. And I think particularly as our church wants to pursue world missions and send individuals to participate in that way, then likely, especially if they're going to aid missions where they already exist, there's going to be this experience of alcoholic wine. Third, it's preferred because the biblical record indicates that alcoholic wine was in use. I know this text is a little bit debated, but in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul rebukes the Corinthians because they were getting drunk at the table. But what's interesting is that Paul does not say you remove your drunkenness by removing wine. Instead, he says you remove the drunkenness by removing sin and, and approaching the table in a worthy manner in communion with one another. And so even where we would see in the biblical text wine being abused, the abuse didn't lead to the rejection of it. Fourth, the Lord's Supper in part declares the return of Christ. Christians partake at the table until the Lord comes. They declare his death until he comes. And then at the, when Christ comes, there's a judgment of the righteous and the wicked, and the righteous are ent enter into the blessed visions of the kingdom. In the way that the Old Testament talks about the kingdom, especially in Isaiah 25, 6, includes terms like partaking in the choicest meat and fine vintage wine. And so there's, you understand why the church for 2,000 years, as they look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb and dining in the kingdom, tried to preserve the best of a thing for the Lord's Supper. 
So I think then we can say in the ideal world, the use of alcoholic wine would, would be preferred in communion for the church. And in fact, in, even in the American church or among Baptists, uh, the, the use of alcoholic wine is increasing. It's becoming a lot more popular. Generally in those churches, though, they reserve the outer ring of the thing that's passed for grape juice or a non-alcoholic wine. And um, I, I think that's a, a solution. I don't like it because it now makes distinctions between those who will drink alcohol and who won't in a meal that's intended to signify unity. I'll talk about that more in a moment. But I think that Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 10 regarding me offered to idols are applicable here. If you find yourself visiting a church, you don't need to ask, is there is this wine or is this juice in communion? Just take part of communion. Don't be over scrupulous about this either way, whether you believe that wine must be used or wine must not be used. Um, take Paul's advice when you're, when you're visiting the home of a pagan and they offer you meat. Don't ask whether it's been offered to an idol or not. Just partake, eat, drink to the glory of God. Do that in communion as well as you look at the bread in, in the cup. Don't worry about what it's made of. Eat, drink, remember our Lord, and do it to the glory of God. So one might ask, why, if wine is preferred, does Resurrection Church continue to use not wine? Well, I'm going to give some reasons here. And um, for, for those who had to bear with the uh, arguments why wine would be preferred, those who would prefer wine and we aren't using it, bear with us and hopefully try to understand it. First, the above point regarding an overscrupulous approach to the table applies here as well. I think we can become overscrupulous in trying to be exactly like what Jesus did when he did the Lord's Supper in a way that deters us from actually remembering our Lord, the one who we're saying we want to be exactly like. And in fact, if we keep going that overly scrupulous overly scrupulous route on whatever side you come, eventually you just run into the problems of trying to make bread in the first century Jewish way and determining exactly what kind of wine Jesus would have used at that time. So then you're probably relegated to picking up the, um, the Passover wine used by, by Jews for Passover. In either case, I think if you would be someone here who says we should be using alcoholic wine, know that we, you don't need to be that particular, um, but I understand the sentiment, and in some ways, I, I think I agree with it. Uh, we want to do what our Lord did. Second, we just need to realize that we stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before us, and particularly in our country that went through a long prohibition era that is still really having impact on our country today. Um, we just, that's where we are. And I know the answer of it's what we do or we, it is what it is is not satisfactory to someone who would like something different. But that's, we find ourselves limited by space and time, and this is the reality we're in. And if, if God calls you somewhere else to a church where this wine is used, praise God for that. If, you're, if you move to another country where every church that you could find uses wine, praise God for that. But know that we're limited by space and time, and this is where we happen to be. And the results of that show up in, in some of the debates and divisions in church over this issue. Um, I'll just briefly say that during the prohibition, many churches, Baptists and otherwise, but especially Baptists that had church covenants, 
added into their covenants, abstaining from alcohol is, is part of their covenantal commitment to one another. And, um, as, and that didn't get removed after prohibition. It was added because that was the law. Well, when it became not the law, it wasn't removed. And now I think probably the, the large majority of Baptist churches have removed it. But even still, as you visit churches on vacation or something, if you go to a Baptist church, uh, read their, their covenant. And if you're, you know, anywhere south of Minnesota, probably, in a, in a southern church, you're still going to find it. And, and you'll see why, largely in Baptist churches, this is really an item of division, not just difference. Third, we seek to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, particularly during the rite of the church that's intended to express unity in the body. Um, so this alcoholic wine, given our time and space situation, would undercut, undercut that unity rather, rather than reinforce it. Because I, I know even in a church as small as ours, there would be some individuals who would not partake of the table if wine was used. And wouldn't that be a sad thing to say that, that we could just make a tweak that's, that is maybe different than what Christians have done for 1,800 years, but we can make a small tweak and everyone will lovingly and joyfully come to the table. Well, I think that's where we're at, at least in this church. Um, not every church is in that place, and, and they should do what they think would be best for that church. But in our church, it would be best it, to continue with our practice of non-alcoholic, uh, non-alcoholic cup. Um, fourth, we don't want to hinder the progress of someone who we're ministering to who is seeking to kill the sin of drunkenness and patterns of drunkenness in their lives. Some have argued on the one hand that the best way to help these individuals is by giving a transformative picture of how alcohol can be used in the Lord's Supper. In response, others argue that there's some neural pathway that's triggered by even the taste of alcohol. And given the debates and disagreements on these things, I think it's perhaps best for us just not to use alcoholic wine in, in communion. And especially as we think about where we're trying to position ourselves in our move and in this new location, I, I think that many of the individuals we want to reach in that neck of Burnsville are going to be individuals who, who experience drunkenness on a regular basis. And um, even as we have talked to some who are starting to connect our church, who, who aren't present with us now, are, have expressed they're, they're working through this. And for us to be thoughtless about that, I think, is not um, doing what the Lord's Supper is intending to do, which is to consider one another, not to ignore the needs of one another. So, so fifth, um, we don't we then don't entertain a dual practice where you do part alcoholic, part unalcoholic, as I mentioned, because I think it symbolizes division, not unity. Now, I've mentioned in a recent sermon that true unity is not uniformity, and so therefore you might say, well, didn't you just say we need diversity and different things to have true unity, so maybe we should be doing this. And, and I think in some places that's true, but in places where there are strongly held beliefs or struggles with the concept of alcohol, that difference is more representative of division than, than just simple difference of preference. And um, I think that is likely the case here. And as we gain others from outside who will, Lord willing, join in our assembly, I think we're not at a point where this would highlight unity among diversity. I think it would, it would highlight division instead. 
sex, and this is my one biblical reason for why we don't need to use alcoholic wine, and that is that many have pointed out that Jesus emphasized using the fruit of the vine. He spoke about not drinking the fruit of the vine again. If he had used the word wine, then perhaps we would have less biblical text to stand on, but we, we can assume that pasteurized grape juice satisfies the requirement of fruit of the vine, and we can proceed in, in good conscience and in a sense of obedience there. So in the end, though, I think that prudence and Christian charity are required for people on both sides of that divide, and um, we need to press forward in unity and not sin against one another. Um, so uh, one final objection. Someone might say, but Jesus used wine, and it would be sinning against Christ not to use what he used. And, and I would maybe say, yes, I can agree with that. But you also have to, have to ask, who else are you sinning against by using it? And particularly in a church where wine has never been used, you, you perhaps could be sinning against a brother or sister. And as Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians, to sin against a fellow Christian is to sin against Christ. And, and so in that sense, you're, it's a, what, maybe a catch-22 if you're looking at it in that way. There's just really not much that, that you can lean into in an argument for exclusive use of wine. So in the end, then, I think that it's probably best for us to refer to this thing as the cup instead of the wine or the juice. Sometimes we do that. I think the language Jesus uses in Luke in particular is the, this language of cup. And so we'll, we'll reference the bread and the cup and, and hopefully avoid confusion there. That was the longest section of things because it's the most, you know, perhaps debated or complicated piece. But any questions or comments on alcoholic versus non-alcoholic wine? Okay. The cup, one or many? Um, I mentioned that Baptists used one common cup for the longest of times. And then when they started to use, uh, when the, there was the introduction of individual thimble-sized cups, churches were debating over this because poor congregations could not afford to purchase sets to pass these cups around. And so in, in the very emergence of this, it mirrored a little bit of the First Corinthians debates and divisions between the wealthy elites and, and the poor non-elites, where um, as Baptist associations were trying to figure out what's our recommended practice, there, there was division that was stirred up. But then in 1918, there was this pandemic, the influenza that changed everybody's minds about the common cup. And um, perhaps that's the same in 2020. Hopefully the changes that took place in communion practice in 2020 won't stick around as long as those from 1918 did, where churches started to use prepackaged, you know, styrofoam wafer sealed on top of grape juice that could never apparently go bad, which makes you wonder what that substance actually is. Um, but the pandemics and germs and disease and our knowledge of those things have changed, especially in churches where alcohol is not used as the beverage, um, the way that it's dispensed. And so the common cup is still used in many denominations, but in those denominations, they're probably using alcohol as well, and that helps mitigate some of the germs that are going on there. But I want to read one advertisement from 1919 that illustrates the influence of the influenza pandemic on the Lord's Supper. It says, did the flu get you? 
No one was ever known to contract any contagion or infection of any kind by using Dietz Peerless Individual Communion Service. Well, that's the kind of advertisements that drove the emergence of individual thimble cups. And I think the name, the Peerless Individual Communion Service, really says something about the, the symbolism that got lost as we moved to individualized cups. You're without peer, you're without communion. This is my own little deal. It's me and Jesus. And that's something I think we lose in the common cup. And again, in my ideal world, we, we wouldn't have germs and we wouldn't care if we use the common cup or not, um, but, but we do. And we're going to continue to use thimbles here. But as you partake of that thimble, try to work against the idea that this is my little shot of grape juice for the day, but this is a meal with others. And um, we're, we're taking this as a community. And we try to do that by all partaking of, of our piece of bread and of our cup at the same time. So generally, if you're, if you're not used to taking the Lord's Supper with us, just watch the guy up front, and when, when he goes, you go, and we do it together and, and try to mitigate the individual cups that way. Any comments or questions about the cup? That one is much less debated and divisive, I think, in Baptist churches than any other aspect of the Lord's Supper. I think we're all happy to have our own. But let's talk about the frequency here. Um, the Lord's Supper, I think, in Baptist history has been underemphasized, and that's illustrated by the infrequent observance of the Lord's Supper. So historically, and this is where I think we need to make a hard break from long-standing Baptist tradition, Baptist churches practice the Lord's Supper once a quarter. How many quarters are in a year? Well, four. And that means that at a maximum, individuals in a church, if they were there every Sunday that it was observed, took the Lord's Supper four times a year. And if they happened to be sick one week or on vacation or serving in the nursery or somewhere else, they, they perhaps, some individuals would go a whole year without partaking in the Lord's Supper. Now, even as recent as 2012 in a LifeWay survey, 57% of Southern Baptist churches still observe the Lord's Supper quarterly. That's a, a majority of churches that infrequently participate in the Lord's Supper. Despite this history, though, the larger history of the church demonstrates that weekly observance is more common. For the majority of the life of the church and in the New Testament, the Lord's Supper is pictured as occurring on a weekly basis. And, and that's even the way that their gatherings were framed. So in Acts 20, Paul talks about when we gathered for the breaking of bread, that was one of the foundational pieces of the weekly assembling of the church was for the Lord's Supper. Now, as we look at frequency, churches do different things, quarterly, monthly, weekly. I think only two options make sense. One option would be to do it once a year in um, mirroring of the pa Passover celebration is a yearly sort of annual festival. Well, I, I don't think we should do that, though. Um, the other option that makes sense, then, is weekly. That's the option that we have warrant for in the scriptures. So at Resurrection Church, starting on July 4th, we're going to begin weekly participation, moving from first and third Sundays, so twice a month, to weekly participation in the supper, in keeping with the New Testament witness that's fortified through the historical practice of the church. 
Um, now, our move toward weekly participation in the supper does not mean that weekly observance is a biblical command. So, so several of you have joined us, and Josh and I came from Eden, where it wasn't observed. It was just observed on fifth Sunday mornings, and then I think every second Sunday evening. But we're not trying to suggest that these dear friends of ours are sin, sinning or in error or something like that. It's just that as we beginning with the sermon series in 1 Corinthians and then moving forward, we became more and more convinced that weekly observance is perhaps more prudent in, in our situation. And so we, we just want to say it's not a biblical command, nor is it a sin if a church is not observing it weekly. Our move is just indic- indicative of our, our heightened um, and growing desire to participate in this meal. So I want to answer a few objections here briefly. The first objection to going to weekly observance would be that perhaps weekly observance makes the meal less meaningful. And on, on one level or at first blush, that sort of makes sense, but we don't say that about anything else. If we did not include singing in every service, we, we would not say um, it's good that we're singing less because it makes it more meaningful when we do do it. We would say, why, why don't you care about singing? Like, why wouldn't you have that in your service? Well, same thing with prayer and scripture reading and everything else we do in life. The, the greater frequency that you do something indicates your heightened um, enjoyment of it and the heightened um, importance of that thing. So if that objection is raised, it makes sense at first, but when you continue to reflect on it, we don't say that about anything else. Second, some might object that the frequent participation of the table will turn it into a dry, dusty ritual. And I think on the one hand, this objection is good to keep in mind, um, but particularly to help you approach the Lord's table rightly in faith and with gratitude and not just out of routine. Um, But even there, routine is not bad. As we've talked about throughout this class, we do things often when we don't feel like it, and that doesn't make it disingenuous. It makes it formative on us. So um, when your child doesn't feel like brushing their teeth, you don't say, don't brush your teeth because that would be inauthentic of you. You say, no, you should brush your teeth. Um, when you don't um, you know, tell your wife you love her because you guys are having a fight, it's not right for you to say, well, I'm not going to tell her I love her because I don't feel like it. You need to tell her that and keep saying that until you feel like it again. Well, ritual and routine are good for us, and I think the Lord's Supper functions in a similar way. And it it turns your coming to church on Sunday into even less of a spectator sport and more of a meaningful participation event. So, So you don't come and just watch people up front doing things. There is, beyond corporate singing now, something that you have to do and participate in that you need and, and that makes the church about us, not just about whoever's up there. We, we tried to do that in a number of ways. This is one of them. There are two, well, um, third, some might object that while there's nothing wrong with weekly participation, moving in that direction is just unnecessary. And I have six reasons why, or seven reasons why I think it's necessary. And these are not all of them. Um, So I think we could keep talking about this. Um, I'll try to, you can read these and ponder them at length, but I'll just quickly give a, a summary of them. First, many individuals serve in the nursery Um, on a regular basis, and they miss the Lord's Supper all the time. And it would not be right for us not to think about the church. 
our, our brothers and sisters who are serving in other ways who can't participate. And I've heard from several who go months at a time without the Lord's Supper. So while you might think, I don't need this every week, first you do, but then second, it's not just about you. It's a reminder that there are people who are not you who don't get to enjoy the same privileges that you've been able to enjoy in that way. Second, we, there are many individuals who work multiple Sundays a month. We have several members here who work in healthcare and in other places. There are some who work jobs because it's the only job that they can have right now that requires them to work many Sundays a month. And um, then people miss because of illness, family vacations, and the like. And for us not to have the Lord's Supper or not to think of these individuals who miss regularly, I think is falling into the trap of the First Corinthians who um, the, the wealthy elites gathered and ate right away and didn't care about the poor people who had to work all day and, and couldn't get to the meal in time. Third, every gathering of the local assembly is a testament to the unifying work of the gospel, and that's particularized in the Lord's Supper. Paul causally connects the church's unity to the one bread that they take. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, because we eat one bread, you are one body. And there's a, there's a causal piece of unity connected to the Lord's Supper. And I think in our divided age, we need this more than ever. For the Lord's Supper is the most tangible, physical way that Jesus gave us to abide in him. This is the physical, tangible way that we, um, we sense Jesus with our senses right? Five, the Lord suffers a visible depiction of the gospel that bids us to repentance as we enter and commissions us to obedience and hopeful expectation of the return of the Lord as we depart. Six, the Lord's Supper reframes our perception of the created universe. Christ uses these physical matter things in a spiritual way. And then as we go and as we eat bread and drink from cups the rest of the week, we, we have echoes of the Lord's Supper in every meal and every sharing that we have. And we then reframe the way that we eat to think about the day when we will eat bread without price at the marriage supper of the Lamb and forevermore. Seven, weekly participation in the Lord's Supper, where we're welcomed by Christ to dine in his presence at his table, is a catalyst for hospitality and fellowship the rest of the week. So where, where Christ welcomes us weekly to his table, that's a reminder for us to weekly welcome others to our table as an extension of Christian community that goes beyond our Sunday morning gatherings. So for these reasons and many more, we're going to begin observance of the Lord's Supper weekly starting July 4. And I'll, I'll mention, though, that that, I guess, technically will begin next Sunday. Next Sunday is the fifth Sunday. And um, I'm, teach I'm going to do a uh, Pauline theology, if you want to call it that, looking at Paul's teaching on the Lord's Supper next week here to firm this up more theologically. And then Josh is addressing the Lord's Supper in the sermon. So as he and I were chatting briefly, we just thought, why wouldn't we when everything else we're doing is talking about the Lord's Supper, uh, celebrate and participate in that meal once again. All right, we're out of time, but I would love to talk now, and I'll try to reserve some more space for comments or questions next week. Father, thank you again for Jesus. We thank you for this meal that we'll observe and participate in later this morning. Help us to think rightly about these things. Help us to be nurtured spiritually. Help us to remember Christ and to declare his return, and may that day happen soon. In Christ we pray. Amen.